0: Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time. Well, folks, our topic for today is another one of those issues that the national media just doesn't seem to want to cover. Specifically, I'm talking about the issue between Russia and the Ukraine. Now, according to the Reuters news service, Russia would pay a high price for any new military aggression against the Ukraine, NATO, and the United States, as warned on Tuesday basically, that the Western Military Alliance was meeting to discuss Moscow's possible motives for massive troops near the Ukrainian border. Now, Vladimir Putin countered that Russia would be forced to act if U.S.-led NATO placed missiles in Ukraine that could strike Moscow within minutes. He makes a pretty valid point, doesn't he? I mean, when you think about it, how did we react when the Russians put missiles in Cuba? Now, the Ukraine, a former Soviet republic that now aspires to join the European Union and NATO, has become the main flashpoint between Russia and the West as relations have soured to their worst level in the three decades since the Cold War had ended. There will be a high price to pay for Russia if they once again use force against the independence of the nation of Ukraine, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg told reporters. Now, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, echo, echoed Stoltenberg's position, saying any escalatory actions by Russia would be a great concern to the United States, and any renewed aggression would trigger serious consequences. So, a lot of saber-rattling going on here, folks. Now, tensions have been rising for weeks with Russia, Ukraine, and NATO all staging military exercises amid mutual recriminations over which side is the aggressor. Putin went further than previously in spelling out Russia's red lines, as he called them, on Ukraine. He said they would have to respond if NATO deployed advanced missile systems on its neighbor's soil. He went on to say if some kind of strike systems appear on the territory of Ukraine, the flight time to Moscow will be only 7 to 10 minutes, and 5 minutes in the case of a hypersonic weapon being deployed. He said, just imagine. Now, what are we to do in such a scenario, he went on. We will have to then create something similar in relation to those who threaten us in that way. And we can do that now, he said pointing to Russia's recent testing of a hypersonic weapon he said that could fly at nine times the speed of sound. So we have a mess on our hands, folks. And like I say, the national news just doesn't seem to want to cover it. Now, I found a good article in the BBC uh, News by Sarah Rainsford. She is the Moscow correspondent for BBC She states, when Russia wanted the U.S. to sit up and take notice last April, it sent tanks towards the Ukrainian border. That show of force worked. President Joe Biden called Russia's Vladimir Putin, and in June, the two met in Geneva. But whatever they agreed about with Ukraine at their summit, something has gone terribly wrong. In recent weeks, Russian tanks have been moving west towards Ukraine once again prompting fresh, even starker warnings from U.S. intelligence circles that a cross-border offensive could be in the cards. Now, this buildup of Russian forces was spotted just 185 miles from Ukraine. Now, Moscow insists that it is anti-Russian hysteria, and most analysts agree there is no rationale for Russia openly entering and massively escalating the conflict in Ukraine, Where it backs separatist forces but always denies a direct role. Instead, they see the Kremlin as sending a message that it's ready to defend its, quote, red lines on Ukraine. Above all, that it must not join NATO. I think for Putin it's really important. He thinks the West has begun giving Ukraine's elite hope about joining NATO, according to political analyst. Tatiana Stanabaya, a member of our Politic, who reported to the BBC. Now, the training, the weapons, and so on are like a red rag to a bull for Putin. And he thinks if he doesn't act today, then tomorrow there will be NATO bases in Ukraine. And he needs to put a stop to it. So again, a lot of similarities to what we saw with the Cuban Missile Crisis, only now it's on his end. Now, Ukraine's desire to join the security bloc is nothing new, nor is Russia's insistence on vetoing that ambition in what it sees as its own backyard. But Moscow has been rattled recently by Ukrainian military using Turkish drones against Russian-backed forces in eastern Ukraine. Now, the flight near Crimea of two nuclear-capable U.S. bombers didn't help matters any. There's also concern that the so-called Minsk Agreements, a framework for ending Ukraine's seven-year-old conflict that's too contentious to actually implement, could be dumped for something more favorable to the Ukraine. In April, Russia found that demonstrative military deployment worked well, so it's repeating the trick. In other words, I threatened the U.S. before and I'll do it again. Our recent warnings have indeed been heard and the effect is noticeable. Tensions have risen, President Putin told Russian diplomats last week. He argued that tension needed to be increased to force the West to reckon with Russia, not ignore it. If the military movements close to the Ukraine are explicit, then this is not about direct military action. It's about a signal Putin wants to send. According to Andrei Kordinov, head of a think tank in Moscow, who told the BBC that this probably was the real motive. The signal to Ukraine is not to try anything rash. So how did we get to this point? Now we need a little history, folks. I found another great article at the website history.com by Patrick J. Kiger, K-I-G-E-R. At the height of the 1932-33 Ukrainian famine under Joseph Stalin, starving people roamed the countryside, desperate for something, anything to eat. The Ukrainian famine, known as the Holodomor, H-O-L-O-D-O-M-O-R, a combination of the Ukrainian words for starvation and to inflict death, by one estimate, claimed the lives of 3.9 million people, about 13% of the population of the entire Ukraine. And unlike other famines in history caused by blight or drought, this was caused when a dictator wanted both to replace Ukraine's small farms with state-run collectives and punish independence-minded Ukrainians who posed a threat to his totalitarian authority. The Ukrainian famine was a clear case of a man-made famine, explains Alex DeWall, executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University and author of the 2018 book Mass Starvation, the History and Future of Famine. He describes it as a hybrid of a famine caused by calamitous social economic policies and one aimed at a particular population for repression or punishment. In those days, Ukraine, a Texas-sized nation along the Black Sea to the west of Russia, was a part of the Soviet Union, then ruled by Stalin. In 1929, as part of his plan to rapidly create a totally communist economy, Stalin had imposed collectivization which replaced individual-owned and operated farms with big state-run collectives. Ukraine's small, mostly subsistence farmers resisted giving up their land and their livelihoods. In response, the Soviet regime derided the resistors as kulaks, K-U-L-A-K-S, well-to-do peasants, who in Soviet ideology were considered enemies of the state, Bear in mind, you're just a small farmer, but now you're an enemy of the state. Soviet officials drove these peasants off their farms by force, and Stalin's secret police further made plans to deport 50,000 Ukrainian farm families to Siberia, of all places. This according to historian Anne Applebaum, who writes in her 2017 book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on the Ukraine. Now, Stalin appears to have been motivated by the goal of transforming the Ukrainian nation into his idea of a modern proletarian socialist nation, even if this entailed the physical destruction of broad sections of its population, according to Trevor Erlacher, a historian and author specializing. In modern Ukraine, and an academic advisor at the University of Pittsburgh's Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. Now, folks, it's important that you pay attention to this story and what's happening here. As we ourselves are now faced with a move to create a more socialist society, you can see that in effort to do that, you almost have to do away with private property. And so, that's what these Ukrainians were faced with. Stalin wanted socialism, and the only way he could do that and distribute everything equally was to take all the private property from the citizens, and he started with the farmers, the kulaks. Needless to say, collectivization in Ukraine didn't go very well. By the fall of 1932, around the time that Stalin's wife, who reportedly objected to his collectivization policy, committed suicide, it became apparent that Ukraine's grain harvest was going to miss Soviet planners' target by 60%. Now, there still might have been enough food for Ukrainian peasants to get by, but, as Applebaum writes, Stalin then ordered that what little they had was to be confiscated as punishment for not meeting the quotas. So the famine of 1932-33 stemmed from later decisions made by the Stalinist government after it became clear that the 1929 plan had not gone as well as hoped for, causing a food crisis and hunger, explains Stephen Norris, a professor of Russian history at Miami University in Ohio. Norris says a December 1932 document called On the Procurement of Grain in Ukraine, the North Caucasus, and the Western Oblast, directed party cadres to extract more grain from regions that had not met their quotas. It further called for the arrest of collective farm chiefs who resisted and of party members who did not fulfill the new quotas. Meanwhile, Stalin, according to Applebaum, already had arrested tens of thousands of Ukrainian teachers and intellectuals and removed Ukrainian language books from schools and libraries. She writes that the Soviet leader used the grain shortfall as an excuse for even more intense anti-Ukrainian repression. As Norris notes, the 1932 decree targeted Ukrainian saboteurs ordered local officials to stop using the Ukrainian language in their correspondence and crack down on Ukrainian cultural policies that had been developed in the 1920s. When Stalin's crop collectors went out into the countryside, according to a 1988 U.S. Congressional Commission report, they used long wooden poles with metal points to poke the dirt floors of peasants' homes and probed the ground around them in case they'd buried stores of grain to avoid detection. Peasants accused of being food hoarders typically were sent off to prison, though sometimes the collectors didn't wait to inflict punishment. Two boys were caught hiding fish and frogs they'd caught, and they were taken to the village Soviet where they were beaten and then dragged into the field with their hands tied and mouths and noses gagged, where they were left to suffocate. As the famine worsened, many tried to flee in search of places with more food. Some died by the roadside, while others were thwarted by the secret police and the regime's system of internal passports. Ukrainian peasants now resorted to desperate methods in an effort to stay alive, according to the Congressional Commission's report. They killed and ate pets and consumed flowers, leaves, tree bark, and roots. One woman, who found some dried beans, was so hungry that she ate them on the spot without cooking them and reportedly died when they expanded in her stomach. The policies adopted by Stalin and his deputies in response to the famine after it had begun to grip the Ukrainian countryside constitute the most significant evidence that the famine was intentional, according to Erlacher. Local citizens and officials pleaded for relief from the state, and waves of refugees fled the villages in search of food in the cities and beyond the borders of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. The regime's response? simply was to take measures that worsened their plight. By the summer of 1933, some of the collective farms had only a third of their households left, and prisons and labor camps were jammed to capacity. With hardly anyone left to raise crops, Stalin's regime resettled Russian peasants from other parts of the Soviet Union into the Ukraine to cope with the labor shortage. Faced with the prospect of an even wider food catastrophe, Stalin's regime in the fall of 1933 started easing off its collections. The Russian government that replaced the Soviet Union has acknowledged that the famine took place in Ukraine, but they denied it was genocide. Estimates are that somewhere between 60 and 90 million Russians died as a result of the famine. Bear in mind, they weren't just killing the Ukrainians, they're killing the people that raised the food. And with that shortage, it spread to cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, where people starved by the millions. Now bear in mind, we hear about Hitler's atrocities and killing 6 million Jews, but you hear very little about Soviet atrocities and this great famine that took 60 to 90 million of the Soviets' own citizens. Now in April of 2008, Russia's lower house of parliament passed a resolution stating that there is no historical proof that the famine was organized along ethnic lines. Nevertheless, at least 16 countries have recognized the Holodomor, and most recently the U.S. Senate in a 2018 resolution, affirmed the findings of the 1988 commission that Stalin had indeed committed genocide. Bear in mind, the Russians were our allies in World War II. Ultimately, although Stalin's policies resulted in the deaths of millions, it failed to crush Ukrainian aspirations for autonomy, and in the long run, they may actually have backfired, in the case of Ukraine, it generated so much hatred and resentment that it solidified Ukrainian nationalism. And so you can see why the people today are so adamant about never rejoining the Soviet Union. Now, the Ukraine gained its independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and has since veered between seeking closer ties with Western Europe and rejoining its alliance with Russia, which sees its interests as threatened by a western-leaning Ukraine. Being Europe's second-largest country, Ukraine is a land of wide, fertile agricultural plains, with large pockets of heavy industry in the east. Now, while Ukraine and Russia share common historical origins, the western part of the country has closer ties with its European neighbors, particularly Poland and nationalist independence sentiment is strongest there. However, a minority of the population wants to actually rejoin Russia and uses Russian as its first language, particularly in the cities and in the industrialized East. An uprising against pro-Russian President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014 ushered in a new Western-leaning government But Russia used the opportunity to seize the Crimean Peninsula and arm insurgent groups to occupy parts of the industrialized eastern side of Ukraine. So the bottom line is, Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. But when the USSR collapsed, Ukraine sought and is still seeking its independence. Now I found another great article on this whole issue on the website The Hill, written by Ellen Mitchell. And it brings us back to the present situation. Washington is on edge as Russia's military buildup threatens a confrontation, with fears escalating following reports that U.S. intelligence shows that indeed Russian forces are preparing to push into the Ukraine. Now, over our Thanksgiving holiday the Biden administration received reports that nearly 100,000 Russian troops are stationed at various locations on the country's western border, with no sign of those numbers decreasing. Tensions have grown so high that the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine on Wednesday warned of unusual Russian military activity near Ukraine's eastern border and in the annexed peninsula of Crimea, telling U.S. citizens do not travel there. Now, the new warnings come as Ukraine this week began to publicly declare that Russia could invade as soon as January or early February, much like when it annexed the Crimean Peninsula in 2014 and backed an insurgency in eastern parts of the country. More than 14,000 people have since been killed in that conflict. A similar land grab, which would be the second in less than 10 years, has global implications and could trigger a massive military conflict as well as geopolitical strife between Russia and Western nations. Our concern is is that Russia may make the serious mistake of attempting to rehash what it undertook back in 2014 when it amassed forces along the border, crossed into sovereign Ukrainian territory, and did so claiming falsely that it was provoked, according to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. But U.S. officials are determined not to be caught off guard by such a military operation, with Blinken on Saturday indicating the administration was preparing for any aggressive Russian maneuver. Reports also emerged this week that the Biden administration is mulling its options to deter the Kremlin, including sending military advisors and new weapons to Kiev such an aid package could include helicopters, mortars, air defense systems such as Stinger missiles and new Javelin anti-tank and anti-armor missiles. U.S. officials have also reportedly talked with European allies about forming a new sanctions package that could go into effect should Russia invade. Now, State Department f- officials have not publicly mentioned any of the new weapons or sanctions packages, but one official told The Hill on Tuesday that the administration has demonstrated that the United States is willing to use a number of tools to address harmful Russian actions, and we will not hesitate from making use of those and other tools in the future. Also, in an effort not to be caught flat-footed, administration officials have shared intelligence with allied countries. Pentagon officials have also kept in close contact with their counterparts, with Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley speaking by phone with Lieutenant General Valery Valzuni, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's military, on Monday. Milley also spoke via telephone on Tuesday with Russia's top military officer, General Valery Gerasimov. In addition, the administration has sent U.S. Navy patrol boats to help the Ukrainian Navy counter Moscow in the Black Sea. But even with its threatening stance, one that numerous NATO nations have publicly noted, Russia continues to deny it has any intention to invade its neighbor like it did eight years ago. Russian spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Tuesday that it's amassing its forces and equipment don't pose a threat to anyone and should not cause concern to anyone. He instead blamed a targeted information campaign from Western nations as the cause of building up tension, and said should the U.S. send additional military assistance to Ukraine, it could lead to a further aggravation of the situation on the borderline. So there you have it, folks. Should we get involved in this mess? Keep in mind, while all this is happening... China is threatening Taiwan in much the same way that Russia is threatening Ukraine. Is this a result of the U.S. showing weakness on the world stage with our withdrawal from Afghanistan, or was this bound to happen anyway? Food for thought. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.